You can see my award-winning climate comedy show spoilers at a festival near you, provided you live near or are going to McHuncliffe or Wells Comedy Festivals. More dates added soon near you, conceivably, who knows what might happen. And if you are at Mac, come and see ComCom Redacted live at 4pm on the Saturday. Go to stuartgoldsmith.com and click the very attractive banner image to find out more. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is a podcast from comedianscomedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello and welcome to the show. I'm Stuart Goldsmith and today I'm talking to a brilliant comic and comedy actor, David Cross. Uh, Now, the location uh, for this particular interview fell through, sadly, at the last minute. Um, So very, very many thanks to the Nell Gwynn pub in Soho, who kindly housed us in their upstairs room. Um, That is their washing machine that you can hear in the background of this interview. The sound quality is not as perfect as I'd have liked, but it's still totally doable. Um, So this is the first half. David was kind enough to talk to me for two hours, uh, and we covered a lot of stuff. His seminal sketch double act, Mr. Show... Uh, his role, of course, of Tobias in Arrested Development, and lots more besides. But in this episode, we focus mainly on his stand-up. Now, not everyone in the UK knows David as a stand-up comedian, but he's got several gigs, uh, concerts, you know, albums you can download on iTunes, um, as well as two specials that you can find on YouTube, which I only came to very recently whilst specifically researching him. Please look him up. He's an incredibly exciting comedian. Um, David is one of the three or four comics who is perpetually on my iPod and who gets routinely shuffled into my daily life, my long drive and my aeroplane time. Um, I'm, uh, I'm just mad about his stuff. But I relaxed into it. I think eventually I was probably a little bit intimidated at the start. He was very, very forthcoming. Um, so I'm very pleased and proud to bring you now, David Cross. Thank you so much for coming and talking to me, David. I saw you in, uh, in Happy Mondays last Monday where you said that you are recording a sitcom here. So, uh, or is it a sitcom no. TV show? It's uh, it's neither recording nor sitcom. It's uh, we're writing the. Actually, let gotcha. me ask: When does this go out? Because <laughs> I'm not supposed to say anything until. Oh, fine. Okay. Uh, it was going to go out this week, but I can hang on to it for a little while. Is this? You're working. Yeah, on? yeah, yeah. Okay, we cannot um, we cannot talk about that at all. And I, if, I would rather put it out sooner. Okay. Um, if that means not talking about, then we can do that. Yeah. Why don't we just say I'm I'm here writing. I'm, I'm here working okay. on a project, writing. Okay, and then I'll ask you separately off eggs. I thought that was I thought was finished, so I'm interested in that separately. But uh, yeah, yeah. Well, that'll be off the record, but I'll tell you whatever. Ooh. Yeah, lovely. Okay, so we'll start again. So I saw you in uh, in Happy Mondays. I know you uh, just said that last Monday. <laughs> yeah, that'll work as a joke, but only if I bleep out it's the a, sensitive information. It's an inside <laughs> joke for just the two of us. <laughs> 
Um, we did a re- this is a retake, guys. <laughs> I said something very untoward, and he, we had to start over. It was really and for you, untoward could be yeah. very untoward. Yeah. So uh, I, I saw you. You said you're living in Shoreditch at the moment. Yes. How are you finding London? You've been here before. Oh yeah, I've spent years here uh, cumulatively, not not in a row, but um, uh, spent a lot of time here, and um, uh, I, you know, I have a. I have a love-hate relationship with Shoreditch. It's, uh, I'm, I'm getting a much better flat for the money than I would get if I was where I used to stay, Notting Hill or uh, South Kensington. Um, but you know, the area has a lot of cool stuff in it, but um, the people that are behind the counters that <laughs> sell and create the cool stuff are, uh, are such arch caricatures. It... You know, nobody is, you know, a dick or mean or, or whatever, but uh, collectively it's a little annoying. Yeah, okay. Um, and, uh, and as I said on stage the other night, I, I owe Williamsburg uh, a big apology. I remember you saying that, and I don't know Williamsburg at all, but the, I think, and I don't know if the room did, but everyone got it in the context because everyone knows Shoreditch. Williamsburg is the epicenter globally um, of the kind of hipster takeover. Um, gotcha. not, uh, where, where gentrification meets hipsterism. And, okay. uh, and it happened very quickly in Williamsburg, uh, in a relative sense. And it's, uh, you know, it's, a, it's like an amusement park for and of hipsters and, and what we consider hipsters. Um, and, and and Williamsburg is is funny. I mean, it's a it's a it's a place that I'm I'm glad it exists because it's nice to go there on the weekends. And there's all kinds of there's the food is amazing and there's all kinds of cool stuff. But again, it's just the it's it's not the it of it. It's the um the fact that it's only that. Yeah. Okay. And and it's big. And this idea that these people consider themselves uh you know fashionable unique there's a there's a uh um utilitarianism to their uh our their sartorial makeup and their but it's still um you know it's still this they're all together in the same place so it stops it ceases no one's being alternative about Uh, yeah, yeah it's like a costume it's like a um and it would be you know, it'd be pretty cool and something that I, I think you should you could carry some sort of pretense with if you were doing that in, you know, Macon, Georgia. Um, uh, but to, it's just, I mean, it's, it, yeah, I guess I've, I've explained it. It's just <laughs> the, the idea that they all go there and they all dress the same, wear the same things. Uh, or variations on those have the same facial hair, have the same tattoos, have the same or same kind of tattoos. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, one dude just has furniture on his arms, and another girl <laughs> just has ladybugs, and and you know whatever it is, it's just it stops the thing that they think it is. It ceases to be because they're all doing it collectively, and there's an irony there that I don't think they get. Do you do you find that as a in the UK, obviously, we would have, and I'm sure you're aware of the, the concept of alternative comedy, and I guess in the States, kind of some comedians are known as alt-comedians. Uh, yep, yep. And you, would you be one of them? Do you think that you... Or you, do you think you're identified by the people as being part of that? Definitely. And uh, um, 
you know, it's that's another thing I've I have uh, I have mixed feelings about because it's a it's kind of a lazy thing that doesn't mean much anymore. But back when it that that was a movement that never nobody ever sat down and said let's start a movement. It just sort of happened um, as a lot of cultural things shifts do. Uh, but there were back then the standard comedian um, and the one that you would be represented on, you know, film and TV when you showed a stand-up. It was the the guy in front of the brick wall, uh, you know, with his sleeves rolled up of his jacket and a skinny tie, you know, making observations, you know, and and you know this this lady is this and what what's you know kind of Seinfeld kind mm-hmm. of comedy and uh, and then there were a bunch of younger comics. Um, mostly in uh, Boston and San Francisco and kind of spreading to New York and L.A. that, you know, stopped, didn't do that, didn't, uh, did different kinds of comedy. Not that there wasn't always an, I mean, you know, Lenny Bruce is an alternative comic. Uh, I mean, there were lots of them. Uh, You know, it it was the getting away from the construction of the, you know, uh, information, information, punchline, callback type of structure, and it was more personal or more absurd, or uh, it depended less about you know punchlines, I guess. Mm. And uh, and I was definitely a part of that in the states, and that that goes back to I don't know early '90s, you know, and mm-hmm. everybody was doing shows in the back of uh, a laundromat or a bookstore or you know, coffee house, um, I guess kind of getting back to its roots in a way. Um, I'm talking about old Jews sitting around a campfire in the 1200 BC telling stories. <laughs> I, I anticipated when I started comedy that I would be much more alternative than I've ended up. I suppose if I look But what does at, that mean to you? What is alter- and and well, I, let, me, let me finish. <clears throat> what, the, the other thing is it's, it, it, it is, I get why that term whoever made it up, somebody came up with the term to describe, you know, a handful of comics who were rising through the ranks and you were starting to see on TV and, um, and, but it's kind of a lazy catch all and and has been for a while. And, and at this point, and Jesus going back, I mean, really you'd have to, it's been 15 years now, uh, easily that, uh, alternative comedy is now just comedy. That's the comedy. Yeah. Yeah. That's what you see. That's what, you know, when, that is now comedy. So there is no alternative anymore. I suppose what's happening in the UK is that the, the people who I grew up with, understanding that were alternative comedians, are now very successful mainstream comedians. And there's a new wave of alternative comedians. Um, but what are that, they alternative to, and how are they alternative? Well, I suppose they're, they're alternative. In, in just the same way you've said there is, like, information, information, punchline. There, there was like a, a few years ago, suddenly everyone had a graph on stage. And there's quite a lot of people now that like clambering into audiences and sweating and improvisational, more confrontational. Mm-hmm. Um, that's, that's far less the sort of comedy that I... And I, I was inspired by a lot of people. Like, I don't know if you know Simon Munnery mm-hmm. in the UK. Sure. He's a huge yeah. inspiration of mine. And, um, and I thought I would do that really he weird... Would certainly be, be considered an alternative comedy. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, he hasn't become a mainstream comic. Right, no. right. Um, but I suppose what I'm getting at is that I 
thought I would be like that because mm-hmm. I found like what I the reasons I wanted to do comedy were because they were an alternative to my life to the sort of structures of my school and my environment and stuff like that and I, I'm constantly sort of befuddled that by coming into comedy, I've ended up someone who wears a blazer and does information, information punchline, because that's kind of the thing I'm trying to get close to. And I suppose the reason I mentioned it is that when you look at kind of uh, hipsters and people who are trying to live the alternative lifestyle in, in Shoreditch or Williamsburg or wherever you see them, was there something, do you recognise in them something in you that was trying to break out of whatever life that you were in in... Uh, in Georgia, um, yeah, I, I never really thought of it that way. But there's definitely, um, you know, if you go back, I don't dress very well. Uh, I don't, I don't dress poorly, but I don't. That's not my thing, you know. Uh, um, uh, do you mean when you say well? Do you mean smartly? Smartly, yeah. Yeah, I got you. Um, okay. I should have British, British, <laughs> Britishized it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I have some kind of. I dress for comfort and. Uh, um, and I don't dress up unless I have to. And uh, I try to be mindful of my wife's tastes. Uh, um, occasionally wear something that I might not normally wear, but it's uh, it's got some, quote, style to it, mm-hmm. unquote. Um, but I look back in uh, my high school pictures, uh, and... I definitely was very new wave, I guess. And I would go to New York City occasionally. I had family there, and I uh, lived there briefly. And I'd go visit, and then I'd go to places like Trash and Vaudeville or places on St. Mark's and uh, and just grab, like, a chartreuse jacket, and I had buttons on, you know, like, a, you know, those 80s, 70s, like, kind of band buttons or whatever. It was very, very new wavy, uh, um, pork pie hat, you know, okay, that kind okay. of shit. And, uh, um, and so that's what I did, but I was, uh, 17, 18, 19 years old. And then you, um, and again, it's, it's about the calculated effort that goes, that it goes and get you, that one becomes involved with. And, um, and I don't, um, uh, and I want to make this clear. I'm not denigrating that. I just, it's when it's all collective and in the same place gotcha. that it loses its meaning or sure. weight or value. And uh, it's almost like the, the the effort to show that you don't care. Well, no, those guys do care. I, I I would not say that they. I don't think they're trying to show that they don't care. They care very much, and they have a certain width of suspenders or braces. They have a uh, a certain kind of wax and uh, um, that they use on their facial hair they have certain kind of uh glasses they have a you know uh, i mean they're they're a a step away from a monocle and a top hat and i'm sure as i say this there's a guy (laughs) whose monocle just dropped with what um but uh you know there's a place on commercial street uh right by the ace hotel that it was a pop-up store it is a pop-up store so there's various things in there but um when I was there in May, there was an uh, artisanal, uh, uh, I have a picture of it, umbrella maker. Okay. Um, something that is, is, does not need to be, uh, I mean, it's nice that it's craft, handcrafted and you can spend, you know, four times as much on an on a, uh, artisanal, handcrafted, you know, locally sourced umbrella but it's uh it's ridiculous and, and if you do that 
then then it's just got a lot of it is just look at me, look at me. Those guys, remember the we were outside yeah, the yeah, theater and I yeah. pointed at those guys. And you know, I just I I like to be I like to be noticed in different ways for different things. Like mm-hmm. I, I I don't I don't feel it's uh you know, I guess I, I don't want to stand out like that. But then I guess yeah. that's what the beauty of shortage is. is that those guys are only standing out when they get on the tube and go home. Yeah. Um, and then they, they've left their, their steampunk friends behind. Uh, I, I, but as I said when we started this, I have mixed feelings about all of it and, uh, mm. um, and, a, and a love-hate relationship with it. I'm glad it exists. I, there's nothing wrong with it. I, it you know, who am I to, to, to judge? Um, but... It's just the collectiveness of it, and uh, um, I don't know. It's just, and, and and it's it's fashion, and I have a I I, I don't have a lot of respect for fashion, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Uh, and yeah, that's all. I don't know. So I, I wanted to talk to you about your. Your stand-up, like a lot of stand-ups who have acting careers, they play themselves. Mm-hmm. You make your stand-up persona and then you play yourself. And when I discovered your stand-up, I completely forgot that you did anything else because your stand-up is so vivid and so evocative. Well, that's good. I'll, I take that as a compliment. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad. I, I, I listen to it uh, a lot and I love what you do. And I was trying to put my finger on what it is that, that I love about it. And some of it, I think, is to do with... You just said there about, like, you know, who am I to judge? In your stand-up, you are the person that judges. You're, you're judgmental, I think that's fair to say. Absolutely. You hate stuff with well, enthusiasm. Well, that's the essence of stand-up. Absolutely, I mean, yeah. I mean, anybody who has a point of view, there's mm. a judgment involved, and, and we, we all judge. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, it's, uh, I'm, I'm very aware that it's a monologue, one-way street. If it was, you know, and I, I love having debates. I, you, I mean, I get... I love, I love pub culture. I love having drinks and getting uh, uh, increasingly, you know, a little drunk and loose and oiled and talking about all the stuff that people don't like to talk about: religion, mm-hmm. politics, all that. I love it, and uh, I've been doing it since I was a teenager. And um, I was literally on my way here. I was just hanging out at Speaker's Corner for twenty minutes, just uh, um, loving that idea and. Uh, you know, in action, and but you know, uh, stand up is a is a one way street. It's a monologue. It's not a dialogue, and uh, um, that's the the you get away with a little bit more. You know, uh, I I you can't enter a conversation and go there is no God, and then start for thirty minutes, and you know, but you can say all those things that are important to you that you're passionate about, and uh, but couch them in comedy and uh um but yeah that's it's pure judgment i think that as i said that's most most comedy even the light silly stuff is Mm. judgment of some sort is that easier to have um or not easier i suppose is it does it let does stand up let you off the hook of having to engage in a dialogue you can just say everything that you think well it's not letting you off the hook so much because that's just the format of it i mean unless i just went up and did q a and that's fine but um that's not the the, the 
idea of what my stand-up is. It's I come out and I talk for an hour and a half, and you know, you, hopefully you go home happy. <laughs> but uh, um, it, that is what it is. I don't think there's necessarily uh, it's it's not getting off the hook. And and I would you know happily engage in spirited debate on stage. It's just mm. that's not really what I do, or I've been you know asked to do really. And which came first for you? Was it stand-up or Oh, stand-up. Stand-up was when I was in high school. And, uh, um, you know, a lot of open mic nights in Atlanta. Um, and then moving to Boston. And I got very, very lucky. Uh, phenomenally lucky, I think. And it's part of the, the way I, I, I developed, or, or it, it's why I developed the way I did, I think. Um, I was, uh, I had a chip on my shoulder. I, I was very much uh, uh, the, the comics comic where I didn't care about bombing and I wore it as a, as a kind of a badge of honor. And, you know, the other comics would kind of watch for me to bomb and watch me respond to that. And, uh, um, and this, again, these were uh, stand-up audiences back in the 80s. Mm. which uh, weren't as sophisticated as they are now. And um, uh, and but I, but I was in Boston for when I was really starting to find my voice. And, um, and there were, there, that was when the comedy boom started. And the comedy boom really started in Boston and San Francisco. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what fed L.A. and, and uh, New York comedy. There was plenty of comedy in New York and uh but per capita there was just way more coming out of uh those two centers and what would become known as uh alternative comedy and so there was so much the, the boom was starting and uh there was so much work to be had i mean quite literally uh, uh you know chinese restaurants and colleges and uh you know private shows i mean there was everyone had a fucking stand up night everywhere up and down, you know, I I ninety five and uh, uh, and all the way up through New Hampshire and Vermont and Connecticut, and you just there was work everywhere, mm-hmm. and so they had to fill those slots. So a guy like me who wasn't who was, you know, I was funny, but I wasn't a good stand up. Okay. Uh, I mean, I was interesting and uh, and I had great nights. You know, if you stuck with me and and the crowd was accepting of me then it would just go beautifully and it would be really fun and uh um uh you know i didn't prepare that much either i would have a lot of shit on notes ideas and stuff and and then uh uh but that was that was rare you know that was you know one every six gigs i get that and um but the other comics liked me some of the bookers liked me they they saw some potential raw potential there and um but I don't think I would have developed the way I did if it wasn't for having the opportunity to just go up all the time and uh, and not be beholden to, like, three people who run the clubs sure. in a smaller city. If, you know, if I okay. was in St. Louis or Atlanta or whatever and there's really three places to go, you're kind of fucked if they don't mm-hmm. like you, you know. And um, so I got very, very, very lucky. Do you remember what your your first time you went on stage, or the first couple of times, what your material was? Do you remember what sorts of things oh, you were yeah, talking I, about? Yeah, I remember it distinctly. The, uh, it was in uh, Atlanta, a little suburb called Sandy Springs, Punchline. 
I was 17. I was a week away from turning 18. And my act for, and I use that term loosely, uh, for <laughs> two years probably, maybe like, I'd say like two years, maybe longer, um, was really, it wasn't my voice really. It was very, it was a, it was a combination of Andy Kaufman and Stephen Wright. Okay. And, uh. Maybe a little Steve Martin in there, but I was so, I didn't, it was just, some of it was funny and it was definitely, because I think if, if, if I was, uh, or if you saw a 35 year old Mm -hmm. doing that, it wouldn't, it wouldn't resonate. But the fact that I was 17, 18, you know, I think people gave me a bit of a chance and, uh, I was, and and this is, I'm talking like 1982 in Mm. fucking Atlanta. Uh, and I mean, they were just the worst, dumb, rednecky, and that's was the motivation to do stand up too. Was going to open mic nights and going, I can do that. And I remember okay. those. I remember the acts. I remember their names. I remember exactly what they did, and just watching those dumb fucking idiots laugh and uh, at just dumb, stupid, easy shit. And uh, and I was like, I can do better than that. I know I can. <laughs> So this is David Cross, everybody. We'll get right back to this uh, in a minute. I hope you're enjoying this as, uh, as much as I did speaking to him. Um, I am all of a lather at the moment. I'm recording this in Dubai, which uh, if you've ever been out here as a stand-up comic in Dubai, you will know uh, is basically a land of buffets. And uh, I think I've, I've just, I don't really have a problem with overeating generally, but there's this stuff here called umali, which is basically, I thought it was bread and butter pudding, right? It's a dessert, but they also do it for breakfast. And it turns out, I've just found out in the last hour that it's actually made of croissants, right? It's croissants soaked in milk. And I've just been eating loads of it every meal I mean you know veg and rice and meat and stuff as well but it's that's all been a sort of a, a lazy preamble it's been like a double starter before a massive portion of what I now find out is croissants soaked in milk so I'm a little fat ball at the moment many apologies um I'm enjoying the shows here enormously but it's quite odd being on stage um in um in such a different culture knowing that there's certain cultural rules that you can't break, like there are public figures you'd be sensible not to mention, let alone name. And I'm not a political comic at all, but it is it is quite weird knowing that there's... It really makes you appreciate your freedoms, I suppose. Comedy is mostly about complaining, isn't it? Everything here is either too good to complain about, because you're being treated marvellously, or it's something you must never mention. It's an odd sort of an environment. Like, I've got this... I've got, I think, a potentially quite good angle about an aspect of life here in Dubai, but... I don't do it on stage. I don't dare do it. Like, even now, I could tell you what it is on the podcast, but I'm still in the country, and somebody could conceivably have a problem with it and catch up with me at the airport on Friday morning before I leave, and that will never happen. But why take the risk? I'm just, I'm spoilt for freedoms. You don't notice how lucky you are to be able to say what you want on stage in the UK. Also, it's illegal to be gay here, which I hadn't fully realised. I was aware that it was an issue of some sort, But the knowledge that friends of mine, or indeed myself on a wet Wednesday, would be arrested if they made their sexuality known, that you could be, that your very self is illegal. That's mind-blowing, isn't it? I've no idea how they police it, incidentally. Um, If you were, 
If you were gay and the cops came to arrest you, it would be so tempting to try and turn one of them on <laughs> to start doing your very sexiest dance uh, in the hope that you could uh, turn one of them and arouse him to a visible extent and then point it out so that his unit would have to suddenly leave you alone and deal with him and then you could make good your escape during the admin. Um, <laughs> some thoughts there on Dubai. Talking of admin, a couple of plugs I should do. Uh, this Friday, uh, I'm going to be interviewing Andrew O'Neill. This is incredibly short notice, I know, but it's going to be a brilliant ep um, with the more metallic of Britain's most prominent transvestite stand-up comedians. Uh, that's in the Leamington Spa Comedy Festival. Leamington Spa there in Warwickshire, God's own county. Um, this Friday, details online. Google some relevant words if you'd like tickets. Um, which is what I say when I can't be bothered to look it up myself. I think you can go to leamingtonsparkcomedy.com. I'm sure you can find it. Um, so this Friday, Andrew O'Neill, I think that's six o'clock. Also, another little plug, um, go to gofasterstripe.com. Uh, they sell comedy DVDs and they make them in a very kind of... Uh, um, what's the word? In an independent way is, is exactly the word. They make independent comedy DVDs for brilliant uh, comedy artists um, and they've got a sale now on. So go to gofasterstripe.com. This is a non-sponsored advert. Uh, I'm just supporting them. What I think they do is brilliant and I just noticed on their mailing list there's a sale. So you probably want to take advantage of that. Thank you, as ever, for your donations. It's very important to me. It's very important to me that this bit doesn't become me droning on about money. I mean, you know the score now. Obviously, there's new listeners all the time who need reminding. Um, so I've decided from now on, I'm going to do the money pitch inside one minute. OK, so you won't need to skip past and we can all get on with our days. Right. So this is me timing the, the donations pitch. Ready? <laughs> oh, let's try this. Go. Your donations make the show bigger, better and more far-reaching. I'm really proud of this show, but I've got to be honest, it's taking up more and more of my time. And I'm going to look you in the eye and say this, I deserve to be paid for that time. At the moment, at least, the show remains advert-free, and I'm not promising we won't ever have adverts, but you don't have to sit through them right now. This is a, a busking-style transaction. The show is yours for free. If you feel the love, then help me keep it going. Now, I know a lot of students and younger people listen to this show. They don't have jobs. They can't afford to pay. So your donation is basically you putting their name on the door. That's nice, isn't it? I know they appreciate you donating. Uh, feels good to be part of something. So when the next generation of comedians start breaking through and they mention this podcast during interviews on Jonathan Ross and Graham Norton and John Oliver and John Stewart's chat shows, um, when the, the big comics of tomorrow mention, oh, yeah, of course, I listened to the comedian, comedian years ago. Should that ever happen? You will feel all warm and gooey to know that you help them create something and you help them create themselves, admittedly, in a very tiny way. If you can't afford a pound a show, give me 20 quid or tell someone else about the podcast. Donate with PayPal at comedianscomedian.com. Bam! That's the end of the pitch. It felt good. I'm looking at my watch. It was one minute, eight seconds. Sorry, must try harder. That's all for now. Um, thanks for listening to this blurb bit. I say that's all for now, but of course it isn't. What, what there is for now is the rest of the interview. So let's go. No, it's not, is it? It's not the rest. It's the rest of the first half. Golly, this is awfully chatty. Let's get back to the brilliant David Cro Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? 
helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Just to stay with that sort of early period, what, what kind of material were you doing? What sort of topics were you talking about? How were you approaching I didn't, them? I didn't, it wasn't topical. It was uh, um, two things that I remember pretty distinctly. One was, um, one was this story, and I would do it kind of dry, deadpan, almost Stephen Wright-ish, and I'd say, uh, I, what was it? I was, dri- I was, I was driving, you know, whatever. I was driving along, da, 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 and there's a woman in the car in front of me, and I'd describe the, I'd do like little misleads. I still do that kind of stuff in my comedy too, you know, where I do a little mislead, talk about one thing, and then it's really about another thing. So, you know, uh, she's driving, and she, uh, I'd describe her in the car, and then she had this bumper sticker on the back of her car. It said, follow me to Tennessee, and, you know, um, and we get to a red line. I'm thinking, yeah, what the hell? And uh, uh, so we get into Nashville, and I pull her over, and I uh, knock on her window, and she rolls it down, and uh, and I say, uh, yeah, what do you want? And uh, she looks at me, and she, she looks at me, and she goes, oh, I didn't mean you. And that was one of the first jokes I used to do. And that's a that's a fairly that's a decent one. There's there are yeah, plenty okay. I had that were not good. But that but it was told very dryly, kind of um very Stephen Wrightish and uh um I had another bit that I <laughs> used to love doing. It was not funny, but it was at the end of my set and we're talking like open mic, so it's five, six minutes. Um, I would invite, towards the end, it was the last thing I did, I'd invite two people. I was like, all right, um, I got this thing. I got this closer. It's really fun. I just need two volunteers from the audience. Um, yes, you, ma'am, come on up. And you, sir, great. What's your name? And I talked to him for a second. Okay, just stand back here and uh, hold your hands out. And they'd hold their hands out. And I had shaving cream. And I would fill their hands with shaving cream. i go, when I get to the part, I'm not going to say what it is, you'll know exactly what to do. All right, and uh, and uh, and I would just do this whole thing about this is gonna be fun. Just you got you sit here, and I was like positioning them like it was really important. I need I need to do like a foot over here, and you, ma'am, go back here, and uh, and they're sitting there with both hands out with it filled with shaving cream, and then uh, I would do all that stuff, and then I go, all right, thank you, that's all my time, good night, and I would just leave, and they would stand on stage like what the fuck, and they would eventually like sheepishly come off and. Uh, and those were two early, early, early things. And did that? Work. You said you said you just said as you were describing that you said, "Oh, it's, it's not funny." Did that? Did that work? What was the audience's reaction to that? Were no, they laughs? barely. Was it, it was you like, laughing at how uneasy they were? Yes. <laughs> I love that kind of stuff. Well, you're a comic. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know, that's true. That's true. You're not I, an audience, you know, you're not a dental assistant going out. You know, their one big night of the month going yeah. out to a comedy club, standing on stage with shaving cream in their hand. Going, well, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't think that was funny at all. <laughs> was was part of the motivation for doing that? Like you, you said, you 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 found yourself thinking I can do better than the comics on stage, and you found yourself kind of angry at the audience for laughing at stuff you considered <sighs> obvious or dumb. Yeah, yeah. Was there part of you that wanted to kind of punish the audience by doing that? Is that where that came from? 
Uh, not really. I mean, maybe yes, maybe no, but not consciously. Um, I, you know, the audience. I, I you have to look at the audience as a as a separate entity. It's not it, when it's comprised of individuals. I don't dislike those people. Sure. You know, um, it's just the idea of it, and this is where we are culturally, and this is what gets rewarded. It's you know. Um, so it's not really no. I don't. I didn't see it as punishing, and it was just a, you know, it was a goof. You know? mm-hmm. Is your did did you find that by bombing a lot, you got you became less scared of bombing? Did you find that that you that, yeah, that, that kind of I, gave you more freedom because you just didn't care? Yeah, um, I, I shouldn't say it's it's disingenuous to say I didn't care because I would always hope to do well, and those were much better fun, more satisfying nights than when I bombed. It's just that when I bombed, and part of it is is a, a weakness where you justify your bombing on the audience and not yourself, but uh, but I think I'm pretty, I think I'm pretty fair and, and uh, uh, honest about, like, when I, I know when it was my fault. I'm pretty good at that. Yeah, that was me. That was on me. That was not on the audience. And um, it's just that not caring about bombing and and I have to separate this in in two distinct parts one is before I was known and people were coming to see me and then you know the second part is afterwards after that moment when when I had my own style and my name and people were coming out to see me and paying money then I don't want to bomb mm-hmm. and I don't like bombing but it's and again it's not like that I liked bombing it just gave me a uh, having that being cavalier it's it allowed me to bomb and then uh but also that's a bit of an excuse to not prepare i I didn't prepare very well you know and i didn't try in that in the classic sense of i'm going to sit and write my jokes out and craft and hone my hone my jokes which i don't really do i'm better i have a it comes it comes intuitively now and more it's more uh, muscle memory and in, in it's innate i suppose but that's only after uh you know 25 years of doing this but mm-hmm. um initially it was it was kind of a, a an excuse to be lazy and irresponsible and um but i had the backup of that in the sense that I was still funny to people in the back of the room. Yeah, okay. Um, I rarely just, you know, I rarely had a meltdown or, or didn't. And I had enough, as, I, as, as the time went on, I had enough bits accrued where I was like, no, wait a minute, I know that's funny. That, that's worked before. So, you know, this could be the audience. I don't know. Okay. There seems to be a kind of a real fearlessness that you have on stage when taking risks with an audience like one of the things that, that I think of that I, I the three of your albums that you've released or four of your albums you've released I know very well the one that I didn't realise was out there was The Pride Is Back that I saw on YouTube right the opening that was which the first of, uh, that was the first yeah. okay and the, is it the, special, yeah. the opening of that special is that's the when you're singing Aravaditsi Aravaditsi yeah. you know and, and some like, people hate it oh man it. <laughs> it's so good but I mean it, the punchline is really really funny but the given that it was your first your first special in fact as well um that was a very confident opening move to just put yourself in harm's way like that I, on the strength of one payoff to quite a long, confusing... I, I used to do a lot more of those type of things for... Uh, um, uh, obviously, there, there's... Now that I'm 
known, I can't do almost any of them, but I used to go up as different characters and uh, um, where you didn't, you know, you wouldn't know that the guy who's speaking to you right now was the guy on stage in the first couple minutes, and then it would break down in some different way. I went up as, you know, being uh, um, a guy with throat cancer who couldn't talk. You know, I had a one of, one of these, you know, one of those things. And uh, um, I went up as a severely retarded guy. I went up as a very gay, ner- <laughs> very gay, very nervous gay first-timer uh I mean, I would do these kind of characters and then come out of them and do other things, but, um, and sometimes go up and not talk for three minutes, um, and so do something that would end up, you know, I had pre-taped stuff where it was, there was a cue and I would do a certain thing and then the tape would start going and then, you know, uh, I, I had a lot more of those weird kind of esoteric things, uh, I just can't do anymore, but that... Alabrozzi thing was that was left over from when you know I would just go up and and I wouldn't say anything obviously those people knew who I was and and yeah, were there yeah, to see sure. me but uh for years I mean occasionally I would do uh I would just sing that and do that exact bit it was really fun you know and it would also it's a great way to gauge whether, you know, however much time I was doing, whether it was like 15 minutes or 45 minutes or whatever, I was like, I knew what kind of night I was going to be in for based yeah, on okay. the reaction. Um, and, you know, it's just it's just a goof. It's a couple-minute goofy opening. <laughs> and, and what is it both times now when you've said it's just a goof in relation to something on stage? There's a little twinkle in your eye. And what is that, like, what is it about a goof that... I, I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, you're, you're twinkling away. I mean, what, what is it about a, a, a goof that, that, that you're attracted to, given that also some of your material is very lacerating political kind of material? Well, I think it's fun, first of all. And, uh, um, and perhaps uh, it's, it's a way to... I've always had... I've always been uncomfortable with uh, people who start off their set acknowledging how awesome they are, you know, and acknowledging the the roar of the crowd and all that stuff. There's a lot of that around these days. Yeah, and I've always, that just, you know, is gross to me. And, and, uh, you know, you look at my last special was completely, you know, I came out after the show had already started, there, uh, did you see Bigger and Blacker? Uh, I didn't see it. I've got okay. the audio. So I've got if the, I've got the it, song opening, well, which the, I believe is different to the that's DVD. Different. Right. Yeah, the yeah. DVD has different stuff in it. It's not. I mean, it's probably 70% the same, but there's stuff okay. that, that lends itself to visual stuff that's not on the CD. But the opening, I, I won't spoil it, but the opening is, you know, uh, I mean, it starts before I'm ever out on stage. And I think, you know, much like that, uh, Pride is Back and... It it, it uh, it's a way to to deflate the kind of like those guys who come out and uh, you know just bathe in the audience's mm. roar for five minutes. It's just weird to me. Is that I don't, I don't I want to just sort of stay with that for a second because you like do you understand why people do that? That kind of is it just ego that some people come out and just like to suck up all their 
I mean, and what is it about that that, that yeah, that but you it's want deserved. I don't to? take I don't take anything away from the individual. Who does that? That's a choice they're making. They don't have to, uh, but they also might. They just don't think in terms like I think about how how am I going to open the show? How do mm. I? What is the show as a whole as a personality? Mm. And uh, and I know also as does the crowd mostly. Uh, yeah, there's going to be you know roughly. 45 to 50% of the show, I'm going to be talking about, you know, political stuff or religion. And uh, even though I've been doing this forever and I've got a ton of shit out there, people still go to the shows and I still get occasional, like, you know, shut up about that. <laughs> don't, yeah, okay. don't insult my Jesus and whatever. Um, and uh, uh, so it's, it's not, it, rather than start off, you know, with like coming out going, uh, you know, your elected leaders are lying to you, you know, yeah, whatever yeah, the yeah. thing you get into, which fits more when you're 35, 40 minutes in and I'm on my third beer. It's, you know, started off that way. It's fun. We'll, we'll get to that other shit and, mm. uh, and why not have a bit of fun? So getting to that other shit then, where, where did you, at what point after that, um, that your initial stuff, you know, the kind of Stephen Wright-esque mm-hmm. jokes, at what point did you start letting your opinion out on stage? Um, well, it came out uh, kind of meekly in jokes about, and I don't even, I can't, it, like I remember, <clears throat> uh, I remember uh, the first Bush presidency, and I remember making a joke about, his vice president was a guy named Dan Quayle, who was like a lapping stock punchline he was a yeah, young yeah. uh inexperienced uh junior i think senator from indiana and uh didn't have much experience and you know clearly uh not that everybody doesn't do it but clearly uh put on the on the ticket for to get votes and you know youthful and uh but he was also uh demonstrably not very smart he was he was pretty ignorant and uh came from, like a lot of pod- politicians, came from uh, uh, generations of wealth. Mm-hmm. Um, white, privileged, which you guys can certainly relate to. And uh, um, so he's kind of a laughingstock. And his wife was uh, Marilyn Quayle, and she was the, you know, prototypical kind of, you know, uptight, tight-lipped, kind of frigid-looking suburban... Um, privileged lady who you know would clutch at her pearls, but they were young. I mean, they—I they, think when yeah, they must have been like early forties, you know, mm-hmm. late thirties, early forties. And uh, and so I made a, a joke like Marilyn Quayle looks like every wait. How do I? I can't remember the exact wording, but Marilyn Quayle looks like um, every one of my friends' moms who wouldn't let me sleep over when I was growing up because I was Jewish or whatever. Okay, when, you know. Um, and again, there would be a bit of. It wasn't that. <laughs> there was some craft to the way I told it. But, <laughs> sure. but I remember that was an early kind of way to sort of um, sneak in both my views and the religious stuff. And then um, I've always had a, I've been very vocal about my problems with, you know, Judaism and, and religion as a whole. Um, and I grew up in a very <clears throat> religious Southern Baptist uh, 
you know, anti-creative, anti-individualistic, uh, scared, fear-mongering society, um, of which I didn't believe any of that stuff. And, um, and that informed, you know, myself and my comedy as well, eventually, but it was, uh, uh, it just sort of trickled out, I guess. I just, you know, um, I remember this other bit. I, I mean, I'm go, trying to... I remember once I did these... The, started to do those bits and people uh, were accepting of them. It's almost... You get that encouragement. At least somebody like me who doesn't write down all my material and, and kind of go... Uh, I don't edit and uh, economize the, the joke. Um, and... So I'm more... Uh, I'm more prone to, uh, you know, riffing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you find yourself in an environment where you're encouraged on stage while you're doing it. And so you find other little things in there. Um, but again, that in the beginning, that was... Those were the few and far between times. There were plenty of times... Keep in mind, this is working-class uh, Catholic Boston. Um, and you know, so a lot of my stuff didn't really go over, especially following or being sandwiched in between two guys talking about, you know, this fucking fag with AIDS is uh, walking down the street and like, hey, you know, whatever. <laughs> a lot of that kind of stuff. Yeah. Okay. So it, it kind of, it, you you started to say the odd thing like that, audiences would respond and you'd feel kind of like yeah. the opportunity to go further. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. And your, um, your kind of I wonder just as you're saying about your background informing the type of comedy you were doing. Mm. And do you feel that you, over the course of your career, do you feel that you have... Um, has it helped? Has it been useful for you as a human being to kind of kick out against that sort of stuff? And that, you know, the, the oh, things sure. that you I mean, in, in... Like, are you less angry now because you've no. you're shriven? No, I, I wish I was. <laughs> I really do. I... I... I've talked about this before or with my wife, you know. Um, I used to go to, there was a four-year period of time, I'd say, um, maybe three years where I went to a therapist, and uh, and it was great, really helpful. She was amazing. Um, and, but, you know, I have, uh, I really do, I, I don't know, it's, it's almost like uh, I used to have, I used to, get very depressed and uh and um it was a it was an issue for a little while and um um that's part why why I've seen the therapist and uh uh and the one thing that remains that is part of uh I mean it's healthy to be cynical and uh um uh and it is part of my makeup and um, and has made me some money over the years being yeah, cynical. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, there's a there's a, a curmudgeonly anger uh, kind of old man get out of my way kind of thing. I get it in New York quite a bit, uh, um, and I wish I wish that. And I don't know how to do it, but I wish that part was removed from my. Uh, day-to-day existence where I'm dealing with stuff. And, and again, I, I I live in New York, and there's a lot of, um, 
I think if you if you're not careful and conscious of it, you can especially ride in the subway, getting out, and there's just all crammed people. It's a dense. It's a very very dense city. I love New York. I love it, but you know there are things uh, that piss you off the people with the the looking at their iphones who aren't watching where they're going and people will come out of the subway and then stop right at the top of the stairs and those little things that other people can kind of brush off i have a problem they 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 weigh on me and uh, um and I, again i know this is not good i i wish it wasn't the case but there the cumulative effect of of that stuff and it happens wherever i go because I, I i my wife has projects in LA and if I'm not working, you know, she's not working. We're both in New York, uh, which is where we live. But if she's there, then I go to the LA if I'm not working and I hate LA and a completely different set of, you know, cultural, uh, uh, situations, but I still, I'll walk around and I'll just be like, fuck you into my head. Mm-hmm. Look at this fucking asshole. And I feel like, uh, the, the weird cranky, you know, Clint Eastwood in uh, whatever that movie was where he, with the car, you know, whatever that thing was. I feel like that guy, the old man on the porch, you know, get off my lawn guy. Um, and I don't like it. And it's a part of me I wish I could change, but it's, uh, it really doesn't even matter where I go. Like, you go back to the beginning of the podcast, and I was talking about the shortage people, and, you know, I was talking about it on stage the other night, uh, and that's a, it's, it's, you know, venting, therapeutic kind of thing, but that's a that's a pleasanter, more civil uh, example of what's happening in my head. <laughs> yeah. You know. Okay. And uh, and I really, I just, I wish it wasn't. I really do. Uh, but do you ever do you ever overdo the anger on stage? Do you ever do you ever kind of let out mm. too much of it. Like you say, it's a pleasanter version of what's happening in your head. Do you ever connect too well with what's happening in your head? I, sometimes I do. Sometimes, and, then I, and then the more angry I get, and I guess this is true for most people, the more, uh, the more angry you get, the less you're able to calmly uh, you know, uh, articulate what you're talking about. You, you lose your eloquence, and uh, that's the last thing you want to do on stage. Um, there was something in that in the Pride is Back. I remember there was a thing about was it gun, guns or shooting or something. And I was talk. Oh, the real it was like the real. There's some point in that special where I am talking about like violence or I don't know what it is, and it was not funny. There's like a, a good sixty second, ninety second rant. Where I go on and I'm like, what? Who invited Captain Bringdown? All right, let's get back to the funny. And I, I've, that's something I've said, said on stage before, like, oh, I'm bumming people out. Let's get back. And it's just you get go down a rabbit hole. of. Mm. Um, I mean, it's a real place, but nobody, nobody's interested, nor should they be. Um, that's not what they came to see. You know? But, uh, yeah, I mean, occasionally. Uh, but it's a bad thing to do because, as I said, you lose your um, ability to articulate your uh, point when you get that angry or at least I do you know. my uh, my own therapist would say that um, that depression is anger turned inwards are you familiar with that as a as a sort of premise of therapy um yeah well one of the things that my therapist uh, pointed out there were some there were so many I had my eyes open to um, mostly because I was ignorant as to 
what I thought the root causes were and what I thought I was doing and what this meant and why this was, I thought this way. And, um, and she pointed out a lot of, a lot of very useful things, but, um, I used to get, I still do, but not nearly as bad, but, um, any day where I didn't write something, uh, I didn't, any day where I was, you know, I got drunk or played video games or, and that's a lot of days, um, and I had, uh, not that something was due that I just didn't create, I would really get upset with myself, and then, and then I would, it would just cause this slight depression. It would just uh, become cyclical, and everything was feeding off each other. Which I would get a little, tiny little depressed, and then it would. Then I couldn't write anymore, and then I get even more depressed, and then I couldn't write. Really, I couldn't write, and then I get really depressed, and you know, treat it the whether it was drugs and alcohol or whatever, or just sitting around moping, or uh, and it would all kind of compound and uh, uh, cyclically and. Uh, um, uh, and I've I've gotten better about that. I've gotten better about going. It's fine. You, I, I've I've done all this work. I've got more work coming. Uh, but I still do that thing. Like I, I'm about two thirds of the way into a first draft on a on a film script, and I've hit a couple speed bumps occasionally. And when I hit that speed, and I know I've been doing this forever. Uh, I know what the deal is. I know what it is. I know why it's happening. But you can't help but, or I can't help but, you know, I hit that speed bump and I can't think of something. And it's not just that I can't think of what it is, but I just, like, I didn't write anything. I should have practiced what I preach. Just write something on paper and see what happens. And uh, and then I just, and then I start spiraling down. Mm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think a lot of people listening to this will um, will be both uh, uh, encouraged to hear that you go through that even someone as successful as yourself still goes through that, I and simultaneously disappointed to hear, oh God, really after thirty years or however many that still happens. But at least I know what it is. I mean, thankfully I went to that therapist, and and she was very extremely helpful, and I was in a really really bad bad time, particularly bad part of my life, and. Uh, um, and I know I I can hear her voice sometimes, you know. Yeah. Like I know, um, you know, almost like as a, a a tutor teaching you how to, you know, do a tennis swing or a forming cursive or mm-hmm. whatever the thing is. I can hear her teaching and the uh, hear her words. Like, you know, think about this. This is what it is. This is not the what you're seeing is is you can see it from a different way. It's. Uh, the thing is what the thing is, but there's a different way to look at it, and um, and and that's helpful advice I carry with me. Did you did you ever think going into that? And I, I say this: I spoke to a, a British comedian called Terry Alderton on this podcast a couple of years ago, and he said that going into the experience of therapy, which he felt he desperately needed to do, he became worried that it would affect his creativity. Oh, because I thought maybe I th- there's th- you know man, I I went kicking and screaming. I did not want to go, and I. I thought the exact same thing. I ended up on, uh, you know, antidepressant medicine, which I, uh, I remember crying on the way home when, when during that, it, I'd been in therapy for, I don't know, nine months maybe, and uh, and she's like, I think you need to do this, it'll be helpful, and I just was driving home, I was in LA, and I, and I was like, I can't believe I'm that guy, I can't believe I've done this, and 
I'm, I, I'm weaker, way weaker than I thought. Um, but I was looking at it from a completely ignorant, primitive way to, to think about what therapy is and what it can do, and, uh, um, and, and even, you know, the antidepressants. And uh, uh, I've really, that was my biggest fear, was I'm going to lose an edge. I'm going to, and it's just not the case. I don't know what your friend's uh, assessment yeah, of it was. Sure, I mean he's still very, very creative, and yeah. has been after the after the fact of it. I've but never it was, done antidepressants myself, but I, I totally my single biggest fear. The idea that you, all you are as an artist is yourself, and the yeah. things going on in your head, and the yeah. idea that something might pharmaceutically change it just doesn't, those. It doesn't horrifying. work that way. It just okay. doesn't. Uh, I mean, there are many different types of antidepressants. They do different things. They work differently. They have different chemicals that interact with your different chemicals inside of you um so i can only speak to my experience but uh and and it, i also had to see a guy a number of times before he's like okay i think this is what you need and this is the you know dosage i think you need okay like, he, like he a was, chemist yeah yeah exactly okay, exactly okay. a guy who has a, a degree in that um and uh oh man it was it was uh, one of the better things i ever did it was really 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 helpful and uh um you know i would urge anybody who is on the fence about it if you think if somebody has told you they think you know i'm not your mom but if somebody you know an expert in that field says you should do it i would i just recommend it based on my experience thanks man um i want to talk about some of your go on i should say I got off of them as soon as I could because, you know, it's, that's for losers. <laughs> um, I want to talk about some of the, the, the fearlessness in your work. When you're developing stuff, and you said you don't write things down, you don't edit on a page, but when you're, and we're still talking stand-up now, when you're looking at, when you're talking about material that, will, that can cause outrage in an audience, like something, something you do, in, and I've noticed this in Mr. Show as well, I'm, I'm very new to Mr. Show, I've just kind of seen a couple of examples on it, but um, something that I think is parallel between that and your stand-up is when you take a, a line of logic and take it way too far mm-hmm. and then undermine it by showing the, like if it's a political point, you show like the liberal equivalent of it and then, and then take the liberal thing far too far. You know yeah, I mean? So yeah. you, are, you that, deliberately undermine the illiberality. Yeah, that's uh, that's something I, I I kind of pride myself on. I think I'm good at, and I and I like that I do, and I like that Mr. Show does. Um, you know, I, I think most of the stuff on Mr. Show is, you know, taking something that's logical to its absurdist extreme. Um, and as time goes on, I mean, you know, Mr. Show is almost 20 years old at this point, but as time goes on, it's not so absurd anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, a mm-hmm. lot of those things we did have come true. Um, but I guess uh, for two reasons uh, in my stand-up I do that. One is uh, I think it's... I'm, I'm sensitive to the idea that I'm this, that people perceive me as like, oh, some liberal, you know, uh, whatever pejorative term you want to throw in after liberal, uh, um, because I'm not. I tend to be, I tend to agree much more with the liberal way of thinking. I'm, I'm more progressive. 
but I'm not simply liberal, and that's not, uh, you know, not something I, I like, uh, that's not a calculated conscious thing, that's just my beliefs. I'm one of the very few people who believes in the concept of capital punishment. Uh, I'm, I'm, and that's not liberal at all. Uh, but I believe in the, I believe in the idea that you're born into a society, society makes certain rules, um, and the, there, there is going to be a government, uh, just ipso facto, there's going to be a government. Um, if everybody subscribes to those rules and then you, uh, flaunt those rules and you take somebody's life, then, uh, and I'm talking about, you know, very blatant, specific things where somebody isn't brain damaged, they're not retarded, they didn't go through war, they're, somebody just is caught red-handed, there's no, there's, I'm talking very specific things, uh, and you just forfeit your life, that's just a, uh, um, it's a, an agreement you make Mm. to live in this society where we're all going to be civil, if you do this thing to somebody else, then the consequences, it doesn't have to be gory, it doesn't have to be painful, it's just, that's the, that's how it works, that's how life, uh, that's the contract with society, I believe. Um, And this isn't simply eye for an eye, it's just, uh, uh, that's the rule. If you, if you, knowingly, calculatedly, you want to get your wife's insurance money and you want to marry somebody else and then you kill her, then you have to understand going into it, this is the... You don't get to live anymore. We just go, okay, well, you had your shot. You had plenty of chances. So, uh, and I've gotten in, you know, a a million debates about it. And and that's certainly not liberal at all or progressive. so uh, and there and there are other things I can think of, you know. Um, uh, so in part, I do that to to show that I'm not, you know, I'm I'm a little bit more complex than what you're thinking. I'm not this guy up on stage who's like some fucking hippie guy going, you know, fuck the man. Uh, but it 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 helps, I think, your overall message, at least, uh, or your overall comedy for uh, mm. two hours, um, to. To not simply be, yeah, I'm not Ralph Nader. You know, I'm not, I don't know if you'll know. I don't understand the reference. Okay, I've heard his name, uh, but I don't know who he is. I'm sorry. Uh, I, I try to think of somebody else. I'm, you know, I'm not, uh, whatever. Somebody who's, who's an icon of the progressive I movement. understand. Um, okay. Uh, but, you know, I think it's, it's good for your comedy to, to show that, not simply be one-sided. Uh, if you aren't, and and also it's true to my nature, you know, and and it it just helps the overall. It's thing, it's kind I of think. a perfect example, really, isn't it? If you wanted a credential that meant that you couldn't be accused of just being a liberal, you <laughs> I, know, have, I have oh, others. By I'm the sure. way, I'm into the death penalty. I have others. Yeah, um, I think I think yeah, and I I feel quite strongly about it. And, and as I said, it's it's one where there are I, very few people agree with me, um, and I understand there. Their passion, and uh, I've heard some really good arguments, but I'm just talking about the concept, I guess, mm-hmm. of if you do that, then we all understand growing up, like, here's the punishment for that. Yeah. And again, you just go away. We're just removing you from society. Uh, we're not going to put you in a, in a box and, and 
hope for the best uh, upon your release 20 years later. Mm-hmm. Um, now, does this mean that when you were doing that bit in, uh, I think it's from It's Not Funny, when you're talking about uh, uh, Bush executing... Hey, I just thought of something. Go Sorry. On. Yeah, I yeah. Will, I on. will... Let's get back to this. Sure. I have... Um, oh, fuck. I'm going to give this to you. Uh, please remind me. I will... I have... Uh, when I did that album, this is... I'll try to make this as brief as possible. When I put out that CD... The CD does not end the way it's supposed to. It ends on a different... It's out of order, and that was a... I had to scramble to... Sorry, which CD is this now? It's from, not funny. From It's Not Funny, okay. Um, that had a bit that I had been doing uh, uh, all the way up to... It was always planned as my ending. It's an ending bit. I mean, mm-hmm. if, you'll, if you listen to that CD, I don't know if you can tell. I certainly can tell, like, that's not a closer. That's not a closing bit. And um, I had this bit. It was about Lee... Greenwood, uh, and the first part of the bit is there when he, it was when we were going to war with Iraq, and he's this country western patriotic, silly guy, and you know he has this, you know, song where he's like, um, oh yeah, yeah, and a Charlie <laughs> stand up, yeah, yeah, yeah okay. and so that continues, that bit continues, and I have, okay. uh, and I'd done it for a year. I was, you know, I was touring with this, and I. Um, um, John Benjamin does the voice of God in it, and I just do this thing about how those country and western songs, so much of them just appeal to this, you know, this pride in your area, and they just get you to clap about your... They just list places in America, (laughs) and people get all excited, and they're number one hits. And then I start singing the song. I go, the most popular one is that guy Hoyt, you know, and I start singing the song called Clapping in the USA. Then God interrupts me, we have this whole thing. It's all pre-tape, but me going to the pre-tape. And then Sub Pop, which had vetted it, got nervous. And they're like, yeah, okay. it might be too close to Lee Greenwood, especially because you're talking with him. And I got, I was furious. I was apoplectic. Like, you, I can't believe you're fucking me on this. You're taking away this thing. And they were like, we're afraid we're going to get sued. And they basically said, look, if, if we get sued, you're getting sued too. And they, so I was always angry about that being removed and I had to reshuffle the order of the CD and it's not that great uh, but and you can tell it's like a it's a, it's very much an ending mm-hmm. you'll hear but mm-hmm. Sub Pop gave me the masters of it oh wow so what I'm gonna do is and I don't have Facebook I'm not on Twitter okay. I don't have a, a social media presence uh, um, which is a good thing I think I'm glad not to but occasionally I get something I'm like oh, I wish I could put this yeah. out there so I'm gonna give it to you I would love um, to do that. Yeah, and, I could distribute that. And this will... I'm sure that'll shut down my servers or some other kind of stuff <laughs> I don't understand, but that would be awesome. Thank you. But it's great. It's all, you know, it's all done. It's all, uh, it's from, it's not funny. It's in, I'll just send you the whole bit. Sure. And, uh, and you can link it to this thing. That would be or, amazing. Or however Thanks, that works. Yeah, even, man. That's, yeah. How, that's how ignorant is, I am is that I, I say link it. I will take sure. advice on how to do that because I don't know either. But right. I, I definitely have the ability to have people download stuff in addition to the podcast and all sorts okay, of stuff. Okay, yeah yeah. yeah. yeah, I'll work that out. And just, and just that would be the, amazing. The, the reference is this was a bit that was cut out because Sub Pop was afraid they were going to get sued. Okay. And, um, and it was the original ending of that CD. Okay. Yeah. Terrific. Now, go back. I'm sorry. That's, I remember where we were. <laughs> 
So we're going to leave it there for now. Um, thanks, of course, to David for his time and his candour. Um, loads more to talk about in part two of the interview. Uh, Mr. Show, Arrested Development, Todd Margaret, all that stuff coming up next week in part two, which is a whole other hour. Um, also, the special extra content that David mentioned um, uh, with uh, H. John Benjamin as the voice of God uh, doing a sort of uh, part recorded double act with David at the end of that concert is going to come up at the end of the interview. I think that's how I'm going to do it. Absolutely exclusive content, never before available anywhere in the world, unless you were at the gig on the night that they were recording it. Um, then uh, what we're going to do is we're going to take that, it's an eight minute MP3, and we're going to attach it to the end of part two um, of this episode. So that's next week. We'll be back with you then. Uh, much, uh, much love and appreciation to uh, the co-producer of this episode, uh, Nathan Wood, uh, and also to this week's Pod Gremlin, uh, Pod Blin. Um, <laughs> I don't know where I got the B from. Uh, this week's Pod Blin uh, was Olivia Phipps. So thanks to them very much as well. And that's it for now. Ah, oh, golly, I'm going to eat a lot less milk-soaked croissants before I speak to you next time. I promise. Speak to you soon. <laughs> When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.